Um, All right. You have an idea about what I should talk to people about regarding the apocalypse. Yeah. Okay. Tell me what it is. Um, so it's uh, their skills uh, as of right now. Uh, Hello, beloved survivors. My name is Autumn Brown, and this is How to Survive the End of the World. A podcast about surviving apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. Because one of the things that I think about with apocalypse is like how the ways that we communicate between communities could break down. Like you might not have, phones might stop working, internet might stop working, things like that. However, those, 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 that doesn't necessarily uh, matter because uh, what's... Uh, DoorDash, um, gonna do for you during the apocalypse. <laughs> the other voice you are hearing is my eldest child, Finn. This episode you are about to hear is a continuation of my first interview with the brilliant So and Pinar, the love organism behind Queer Nature. Queer Nature is an education project that teaches place-based skills natural crafts, and survival skills. Their workshops and immersions are created for and accessible to queer and trans, black and indigenous people of color, and LGBTQ communities. If you haven't listened to part one of this interview, please pause this recording, go back and listen to that first episode, which is called Apocalypse Survival Skill Number 5, Tactical Hope. In our second interview, So and Panar give us a deep dive on the potential dangers of being on the move in a survival or apocalyptic situation and how to mitigate those dangers. They offer wisdom on how to think and act collectively under chaotic conditions using role clarity and effective group communication. We also talk about the difference between extractive and visionary responses to apocalypse for the environment as a whole. For those of you who have already listened to my first conversation with So and Pinar, you know they are full of deep wisdom and sustenance for this painful time we are collectively living through. We are so thrilled to get to feature their voices again. Let's listen. Welcome back, Pinar and So. I'm so excited to be having a part two conversation with y'all um, about tactical hope and I I think I just want to begin by saying how alive I felt after the last conversation that we had and also how much more like I've noticed myself noticing more in the last Mm. couple of weeks since we talked. Um, And, um, and, you know, and I, I feel like even as someone who like lived in the woods for a long stretch of my adult life, I'm, I'm still, I, I feel an expansion in my awareness just because of some of the concepts that the two of you um, named and described in depth in the last conversation. And um, yeah, so just a lot of appreciation and gratitude. I feel like I feel more grounded right now. Mm. Um, and yeah, I kind of want to just like jump right in where we left off, um, if that's okay. Um, 
because, um, you know, we, in this, in this mini series, we have been having all of these conversations that are like very much informed by the current conditions, right? The conditions being that we're all experiencing this pandemic where we have to shelter in place or self-quarantine or social distance where we have to basically stay where we are and figure out how to take care of our bodies where we are. Um, but I didn't want to, I want, I want in this mini series for the conversation to take into account a broader set of conditions that people mm -hmm. might face under apocalyptic circumstances, including in that um, the conditions in which people might have to be on the move, whether they want to be or not. And, um, and, you know, when, when we spoke last, you mentioned that being on the move can be one of the most dangerous times in a survival scenario. Um, and I want to, and I want to like loop back to that in a moment, but before we go there into this question of, of danger and why, why it's dangerous to be on the move, I was wondering if you could if we could zoom out a little bit and talk about the way that you teach skills of the skill of being in motion um, and surviving when on the move, like how you teach people the skill of accessing food or water or shelter or medicine. If people are in a situation where they've been forced from home or forced from someplace that they consider to be safe and are having to, potentially travel on foot from one place to another or travel a long distance, whether it's on foot or not. Um, and potentially have to practice like stealthiness in that process. Um, so yeah, I'm wondering if we can kind of zoom out first to like, how do you, like, how do you orient your students, the people that come to your workshops to that as a part of the skill? And then we can dive into some of the questions around danger. Yeah, well, um, that's a really good question. And yeah, I'm trying to sort of zoom out to um, to kind of a very general level. Um, and I think that one of the basic things is that we're kind of teaching people how to think in survival situations. And that ties into the previous conversation that we had where we talked a lot about nervous system and awareness and stuff. And um, that is kind of... You, the reason we talk about that first is that's like kind of your first priority in a survival situation is thinking about your so-called mindset or um, nervous system state and and your kind of body. And we're, we're teaching people often, encouraging them how to prioritize the resources that are essential to life, like um, water, mm. shelter, et cetera. Um, and we're, we're encouraging people to think about like their inventory of gear, which could just be what they're wearing, or it could be something that they have in a backpack. Um, and so that's kind of one of the first steps is like thinking about just how to prioritize needs. Um, cool. And often we're, what we're teaching and um, yeah, what we're teaching in, in our classes is like mind and nervous system is kind of the first thing. And then the second thing is, is shelter actually, which I know we might get into later um, in some of the questions, um, shelter, which also includes what we're wearing and um, then water and then finally food. Um, and then there's sort of another like branch of, of needs that depending on the situation you're in 
can be pretty much the number one priority and that's signaling. So signaling is really important if you're if you are looking to be rescued. But the the thing that's tricky about that is a lot of survival skills in our society are taught in a way where they're um a, a lot of them are kind of anticipating an intact society that has the resources to conduct rescue operations. And uh. so yeah, so a lot of that shifts if you're in a grid down or disaster certainly an evasion scenario if you're if you're being pursued actively or or just trying to evade detection so all it all kind of gets one sort of dichotomy that is good to ask when you um, do have to be on the move and you do have to move from one place to another is like what what kind of threats are you trying to avoid um and do those who or what do those threats come from and there's always going to be threats whether it's from exposure in the environment or from, um, you know, other beings in the Mm. worst case scenario. And so that's definitely something to sort of ask yourself. And another thing that we try to teach is um, we try to teach folks resourcefulness um, in not necessarily over and above gear, but we try to teach folks how to sort of solve problems and utilize like materials that they find in nature and and sort of by thinking through that stuff, it, it can help people know how to utilize gear when they do have it. So we often kind mm-hmm. of prioritize resourcefulness and sort of general principles over like what exact gear to have, although we totally can talk about that too. Um, mm-hmm. Like a lot of people will say, uh, a lot of urban survival instructors will say, well, you know, if you want to study urban survival, first learn so-called wilderness survival because in wilderness survival, you're basically learning to work with very few things that we've become comfortable with as as humans in this current society. And so if you are learning how to work with materials in a so-called wilderness setting, in an urban setting, you're going to be able to adapt those skills and be like, okay, well, I know that for starting fires, I have to find tinder, which is like a light, dry, fluffy material so then in an urban situation, instead of tree bark, you're going to use like toilet paper, you know? So it, right. a lot of survival skills is thinking about engineering principles um, and so that it can kind of carry over. Um, yeah. And I mean, another thing is just teaching people how to track patterns, um, not just tracking patterns in materials, like I was just saying, but also tracking patterns um, across landscapes, um, you know, le- like learning how to pick and choose the most efficient um, path through a landscape or through a terrain where, where you're not going to be expending the most energy. And so um, those are things that we're kind of telling people. And we're also encouraging folks to build repetition into your kit or, and also stack functions with, with items that you have. And so an example of that is, you know, having several backups for something really important. Like if you like, water purification you're going to want to have several methods of doing that um and then you know you Ah. also like some items to have um several functions like you know a a flammable rope that you have can you can use it to tie things and you can also use it to make tinder if you need to start a fire um or like another example is a brightly colored contractor bag you know that could be a shelter or it could be and it could also be a signaling mechanism um, oh, and so, 
Yeah, totally. So thinking about, or like just using a metal water bottle instead of a, nal- a plastic Nalgene, because you can hold water and you can also boil it in there. So also thinking about those kind of, I think they're, they talk about it in permaculture, like stacking functions and repetition. And that's really important in, um, in survival skills and just in when you're in a kind of, you're navigating a complex landscape, you're on the move. So you're thinking about these sorts of things. And I don't know if you wanted to add anything, love. Yeah, um, this is Pinar speaking. I think, um, you know, such a, a, a brilliant question. And um, one of the things that's also really important, I think, to both of us, but um, for me that I've been really sitting with too, is, you know, when I think about... Um, survival skills um I often wonder how to do it in a way that like where I can be like mindful of my impact on the land um and what I mean by that too is like okay there's something that I I do a lot of tracking um where it's like my internal tracking or my inner tracking of my internal landscape and um what I mean by that is like tracking like my nervous system, tracking my trauma responses, tracking, um, you know, the, the, my internal resources where I, where I know, um, you know, essentially like, this is my connection to like my ancestors. This is like a, like a portal of mine to connect with my ancestors is like an internal resource here. Um, so that's also something that's really important to me. Um, and for both of us in terms of like teaching these skills is like, you know, take an inventory of your internal landscape too. Um, and one of the the things um, that I wanted to share with kind of my own inner tracking is um, there's a part of me, you know, who's been impacted by internalized colonization, um, like a lot of us likely who are listening to this. And I like, I sometimes call that part of myself, like my inner colonizer. Um, so the part of me Ooh. who um, has internalized colonization, who then perpetuates colonization. And I have to like really track that part of myself when I um, am thinking of like survival, um, survival skills and um, how am I like, am I in relationship right now? Am I in kinship? Am I tending to the sacred? Um, and to me, those are survival skills um, too um, in, in a lot of ways. And one of the things that helps me is, you know, um, because what a lot of what we, the foundation of queer nature that we teach is relationship and kinship. So relationship to place, relationship with the more than human world, relationship to like our inner resilience and our ancestors. Um, but one thing that helps me with my, my inner, like tracking my inner colonizer and am I doing it from a place of protecting the sacred or am I like, doing it in an extractive way, whatever it is, be it like harvesting, you know, even just like gathering water from like a spring um, or harvesting some like nettle, um, stinging nettle, which is like a food, um, is I um, am asking, am I doing this from a place of relationship and kinship um, to this being um, who I'm, um, you know, who's like sustaining me? Because something um, that colonization colonization does is it's a severance of relationship. Um, That's what I think is at the heart of colonization Um, and white supremacy. It's like the severance over and over and over of relationship and kinship and connection. So what are ways in which we can continue to like um, tend to relationship and kinship as a form of um, resilience? 
mm-hmm. while we're doing this, mm-hmm. while we're enacting, uh, while we're taking care of our community, you know? So that's something I wanted to share. It's so interesting because I think like, you know, one of, I feel like one of the ways that that question is really arising in the context of the um, pandemic and the the need for people to be sheltered in place and self-quarantined is the behavior of hoarding resources. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and of course, to some extent, you know, the it's one of those places where like some of the principles that you both are describing are like, I I can feel or sense the need to like be flexible in our understanding of them. Right. Like I hear you saying like in a, in a survival scenario where we're on the move, there's a need for um, repetition and redundancy of like methods for um, getting our needs met. Um, and then when we're in a pandemic scenario where we're sheltered in place and if people are feeling some kind of uncertainty around, um, around having access to food, then people might feel a need to create some redundancies in their, in their food planning. Right. So they might want to feel the need to like, I need to get more just in case, but then there's like a, um, there's like the healthy version of that. And then there's the grotesque sort of inner colonizer version mm-hmm. of that. That's like, I'm going to get much more than I could possibly need because yeah. I'm only thinking in relationship to my own survival and not about this like network and how many of us are having to rely on the same fragile supply system. Right. Right. And so that's just, it's just interesting to think about like the, redundancy as something that is necessary and also redundancy as something that can have like um can be put to extractive use and yeah. i'm wondering if like um in relationship to this question of like being on the move you know like being in a a scenario where you're having to get to safety if you could give in any examples of like what would be extractive versus non-extractive behaviors in those Mm -hmm. kinds of situations? Yeah, that's a great question. Hmm. Just have to think about it for a minute. (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. I mean, I like, as I was thinking about it, I'm like, and we can also loop back to it if you want more time to, to think about it. But I was just trying to think of like, well, what would be, what would be a um would it would it look like ignoring the safety of other people who were in the same situation that I'm in? And yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, and, and I mean I think this is yeah, it really does loop back in in so many ways because I think it comes down to for me, one of the things um that it comes down to, this is so by the way speaking, but it comes down to like the kind of the hero narrative and that you were discussing earlier or like the um in our last conversation or just like self selfishness I guess um and yeah I I think that when we're on the move and we're getting survival needs met on the move and then if additionally if there are additional stressors like the need to evade from um being detected I think it can often um the way things can sort of get toxic is definitely through sort of people going into their really personal bubbles and and sort of like um just just acting especially in a group setting just 
um, yeah, acting sort of selfishly or not acting in consideration of like the group as a whole. And I know, I know we might get into that a little bit later too. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's one thing that comes up for me. I don't know about you, love. Yeah. Um, I think for me, something that I really find important is, you know, before a crisis situation arises um, or a, a crisis arises to ask myself and to ask ourselves, like, you know, what is my drive to survive? Like, why mm-hmm. do I want to survive? And I know that that can be like a really deep existential question. Um, right. <laughs> and, you know, I guess it's my Scorpio moon, but like, it's a good question to ask. And I mean, I'm also asking this, like, one of the reasons why I asked that and why that question came up for me is because um, this is a little bit about my, just like a little slide thing about my personal story, but I myself am a suicide survivor. And um, oh. so like, to me, survival and reclaiming survival as like a trans indigenous person who's like survived suicide is really, it's really, yeah, it's, it goes pretty deep, <laughs> you know, and I think it's oh, deeper. Sure a lot of people, you know, especially of marginalized locations um, of like, of, yeah, just like surviving in a world that, you know, is trying to erase us in some ways, Um, at least white supremacy, not the world, like the ecological world. No, (laughs) the more than human world wants us to thrive and survive. And so does our ancestors. (laughs) But um, yeah, yeah. So I asked that because I think when, when I asked that question of myself, because it helped me really center like come to center the sacred and like practice, um, you know, what is like practicing prayer on the move? Like what is the prayer at the center of, um, yeah, of like me evading or moving or taking care of my, my community. And I think that can really like, it's like an internal compass and an internal altar, um, that can help me navigate, um, and be like, come to center if I'm like, oh, am I being extractive right now? Or am I in my center right now? Um, like, it's also really asking what, what am I protecting? You know, which is, I feel like that question can get so deep in terms of like power and privilege and, um, colonial attitudes and to just ask like, yeah, um, what am I protecting right now in what I'm doing? And what do I care about? What do I love? Yeah. And what am I willing to sacrifice? Yeah. Um, You know, like, I think about this a lot as a parent that like, of course, you know, I think I orient to this question of survival and safety the same way that a lot of parents do, which is like, I would literally do anything to get my children to safety. Like I'll, I can literally imagine myself doing anything that would be necessary. And, and, but then there's like the question of like, at what cost, you know, at what cost to self, at what cost to soul, at what cost to, you know, my children themselves, like, what are we what are we willing to put ourselves through and our loved ones through and, and make them witness in order to be able to survive. Um, And I think about that a lot too, especially like when we get into thinking about like ancestral trauma, like some of the traumas that we all are carrying, you know, like any of us who are like um, carrying ancestral generational trauma from being in, living inside of a community that's been marginalized. Like we are here because someone in our lineage survived and they survived 
and in that process probably had to witness and do some things that were really, really awful, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, or were forced to experience or forced to witness some things that were really, really, really awful. Um, and I think about that too, about like, well, like what, what am I willing to do to survive and what am I willing to put myself through and what am I willing to put my children through? And then like, what does that mean for everyone's, the, the like quality of our survival, right? <laughs> like, yeah. cause we don't want to just be surviving, right? Like we want to be living. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I just, I just was resonating with what you're saying. Cause it was actually reminding me of like some of the training I've done in, um, this is so speaking again, as an EMT doing like uh, direct action response training to like active shooter stuff. Um, and like, and so the question you're getting into, at least the way it's striking me is you're really getting into like, yeah, like the, like where, where do I draw that line in the sand uh, with my actions to like, what am I willing to do? What am I willing to sacrifice for survival of myself and my family? And like one thing that, that we teach when we teach like active shooter response stuff is like, you know, if, if you can't basically hide or run away, um, then you're one of the last like options that you have is to basically physically fight. And in that situation, usually what we're training people is we're just saying like, you have to give yourself a, basically a mental permission slip to act in this situation. And you can kind of go back to our first conversation mm-hmm. with the OODA loop where we're talking about, okay, observe, orient, decide, act. And when you do go to act, if it is something that you've never done before or that is really intense, um, you know, if it's something life preserving, there really is a lot to be said for just like giving yourself this kind of permission slip to become more like, you know, aggressive or more territorial if you're protecting your children, like than you ever have before. Um, and mm. that and the, you actually are allowed to do that in that situation. And that is okay. Um, so I don't know yeah. if that kind of helps to just to feed that in. Yes. Yeah, it does actually. And, you know, and as hard as some of this conversation is to have, I'm, I'm so grateful that we're having it because I think that these are exactly the kinds of questions that so many of us are, you know, kind of grappling with in like the privacy of our own minds and hearts. Yeah. Um, um, and, and particularly because like, you know, it, this sort of feeds back to like some of the like cultural, the, the piece that we were talking about in our last conversation about like, what are the cultural narratives that we all consume around survival? And yeah. those cultural narratives often include people doing things that we can't ourselves imagine doing, right? Yeah. And for a variety of reasons or things that they, sometimes those narratives include people doing things that we that we find horrific, but we do imagine that will happen in a apocalypse scenario, right? And and then the result of I think for some people of consuming those narratives is that sense of like freeze. Like I would not, I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't be able to survive. I wouldn't be able to fight back, you know. Totally. And um, and I think that to some extent, like actually having the conversation, like confronting the part of ourselves that is thinking about it and being like, all right, well, bitch, what would you do? <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. kind of important. Um, and yeah. so, I mean, that's how I talk to myself. I'm not saying anyone else should talk to themselves. That way, but, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a lot for me. It's true. Um, like visualization is so important. Like visualization is, is used by like 
lots of professionals who work in high high risk and high threat jobs for sure and i think that it's so true what you're saying is just whether it's like visualizing it or talking through it with kind of self-talk like it's it does a lot it really does we will be back with more of my conversation with queer nature in a moment but first an offering to our community so many of us have lost or will lose beloveds to COVID-19. And we want to create space to honor those losses here on the podcast. In the final episode of this series, we will read aloud the names of those who have been lost. If you wish to send the name of a loved one, please email it to us at howtosurvivepod at gmail.com. And please do include guidance on how to correctly pronounce your loved one's name. Grieving together is part of how we care for one another, and we can do so even across a vast distance. We hope you will let us hold a part of your grief. Okay, back to my conversation with Queer Nature. You did, you know, mention in our last conversation this idea that being on the move can be the most dangerous time um, in a survival scenario. And I was wondering if you could just like, like take us there, like the drop into it and, you know, help me help our listeners understand, like, what are some of the potential dangers of being on the move? And I'm thinking, especially in relationship to the heuristic traps that you spoke about um, in our last conversation and that you wrote about in the document that we're posting with the show notes. Um, Like, I can imagine how some of those heuristic traps, like, become even more um, uh, of a concern when people have to be in motion, especially if they're having to move in a group. Um, So I'm wondering, like, what are some of the dangers? How do we mitigate against those dangers? Like, how do we, how do we avoid landing in heuristic traps that might expose us to even greater danger when we're having to move to find shelter? Totally. Yeah. And that's a really great question. Um, And one of the things we wrote like in our notes about this discussion and like we put it in bold is teamwork and chaos is one of the most emotionally and spiritually difficult practices there is. Um, Mm, And totally. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, and it's interesting because I really, I actually really liken it to like, you know, marriage or like having kids, I'm sure we can imagine because these are, these are the ultimate it like instances of teamwork in our lives, you know? And so the, the thing is, is when you're in um, a survival situation with folks, especially if there's like threat that is like, depending on the shape of the threat and different people's like triggers and reactions to it, like you become a family, like you immediately, like whether you're a family by blood or not already, if you're in a group of people and you're trying to, you know, evade a threat, um, in, or you're trying to like, you know, escape something, a dangerous situation or get somewhere by, you know, a certain time, you're basically going to become an ecology that is, that has a lot of similarities to like family dynamics and all those family dynamics and stuff is going to come out. And so, Interesting. I, yeah, so it's just like, you know, and I think that for me and for Pinar and I, a lot of this, we've seen a lot of this in just training that we've done. Um, too. And I think it can be heightened in training because in training, people often will um, 
fall into some of the heuristic traps around like, um, you know, this is my only chance to like do something like this or have an experience like this. So I just want to like, you know, go all out and like, this is my moment. And like, you get a lot of that in training scenarios. Um, (laughs) And like, you definitely get a lot of like toxic leadership. Like you get a lot of like locked in thinking where people um, don't want to change a plan or they've invested too much in a plan already. So yeah, you're totally right on. All of that is really something to think about. Um, And we can kind of loop back to that later because we've got, we definitely have like a lot of pieces to say about that. But I think just in terms of giving people some concrete examples of why is travel dangerous um, Mm -hmm. and why, you know, you you should only move when you have to, but don't let that comment deceive you because often in a survival or disaster situation, you do have to move. Um, But yeah, we're the, we're, we're very vulnerable to um, detection. If you're trying to evade people, if you're being pursued, travel um, and motion just creates the um, heightened ability for detection. Um, Mm. A big issue is exposure to the elements um, and injury. So like my medic self is like always thinking about that when, when people are on the move or when training people. Um, And then related to that is, um, and you know, the injury could include being harmed by, but it could also include just tripping and and falling and spraining your ankle. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, like falls are actually, um, injury by falling is, are actually one of the most common backcountry injuries. And so even just knowing like some of those factoids and knowing like, okay, what most, what is like bring people down most commonly in kind of remote situations. And often it's going to be like spraining your ankle and just being able to prepare for that not happening. And, um, and then also, you know, like um, it costs energy to move, you know, you have to think about the, especially if you don't have food, you have to think about the energy expenditure. Um, And then, as we said Mm. before, there's all these additional variables when you're moving that all pour in and, connect to how that's going to affect your team decision-making. Um, and so like, oh, and another big one for travel is, you know, you risk, you risk getting lost, which is essentially being disoriented. Um, and that's a big, that can lead to any of the previous, um, vulnerabilities that I already mentioned. And for that, it's really good to like print out and laminate a map of your area. And actually for, for like a grid down situation, if we don't have access to our cell phones, I can't overstate the importance of just like an actual road atlas where you rip out the page of your state and like laminate that and put that in your, in your survival kit. Because like people Mm -hmm. talk about like topographic maps and yes, topographic maps of your immediate area are really useful. And if you do have something like Gaia GPS or, and it works when you're out there, that's great. But in a grid down situation, and if there's like, people around who are dangerous, who might be trying to like look for, look out for people to take advantage of what you want to know is you want to know where the roads are, not, not just so that you might use them, but actually so that you might not use them so that you can avoid avoid the roads and be like, okay. So the best thing is like a road Atlas map in combination with a topo map, because a big thing when you're moving is you're, you're having to come back to this question to ask like, what what are the threats? What am I trying to evade? Is it people? And if it's people, it just, this whole game goes to like another level, which is kind of why we spend a whole class talking about survival and, uh, sorry, stealth and evasion. Because if you, because humans are the hardest thing, one of the hardest 
um, especially like humans with military like uh, technology are are very hard to evade. And so um, you right. kind of go into a whole, there's a whole dichotomous key that you would kind of follow. Um, but Sorry, we can, can you get back what you to mean that. By a dichotomous key? Just kind of like a dichotomy is like wherever there's two things and you either go one way or the other way. And so mm. that's kind of like an important dichotomy with like, with traveling is like, you are asking, you know, am I trying to avoid detection or am I actually trying to have people see me because maybe I need to be um, trying to be rescued. And so right. that will kind of change what you do. And like, um, like a big, also a big um, risk with travel is it kind of connects to the medical part is like hand and foot care. Like you gotta, like taking care of your feet is so important with like toenail clippers, um, blister kits, good socks, um, and then having gloves as well. So that's just like, you know, that's kind of detailed, but that's just an example of what you'd be like thinking about. Um, and then the other thing is to like, you, you want to pick efficient paths of travel across the landscape. And this sort of gets into the previous question before about like, how do you teach people stuff? And one of the biggest things we tell people is like following how the animals move across the land and, um, and also following, um, there's a tracking principle called larder and lack. And it refers to like, where are the larders or surpluses of resources on the landscape and where are there like lacks of resources and often mm. animals and like game trails will move between those areas and like animal trails will often move to larders of some sort, whether it's like a larder of shelter, you know, it's a big willow grove or a briar grove that's really safe for a deer to bed down. Or it's like an apple orchard that's like a larder of, for food. Um, so we're also asking people to think about those patterns um, and think about, and often creatures, non-human creatures will pick very efficient paths across the landscape while they'll stay on contour line, which means they'll stay at the same elevation. So instead of like going over a mountain and like going over the steepest part of the summit and back down again, they'll, they'll skirt along a hillside maintaining the same elevation, um, you know, slightly below the ridge line. Um, and that, that's why the topographical map comes in handy. Exactly. With, with topo maps, you, you can basically <clears throat> learn to figure out what's called lines of drift, which are lines of drift are, um, pathways across the landscape or terrain that are the most energy efficient. And so like, you know, along a hillside or along, uh, the bottom of a riverbed or, um, you know, between a little over a little saddle um, between two hills, a low portion between two hills, and that's really important too. Um, and it's also tricky because if you're in an evasion situation, you actually want to not take the le the the most easy paths of travel. Like you often want to move in very kind of rougher terrain. You want to move. Um, you know, during dusk and dawn or during really bad weather, you like in with an evasion situation, you want to take some of the survival principles and kind of like break the rules in some cases, because you're actually trying to not be convenient. So you always have to balance those two things, which in a disaster or grid down situation, you could be moving through territory where there's a mix of like dangerous territory and sort of more safe territory. And so it's just very complex because it's, and it's something that we're really excited to think about because it kind of um, ha forces you to really just be kind of 
thinking and paying attention to the changing environment like all the time and just engaging that situational awareness. Well, yeah, and I can see where it just ties right back to the core skill that you both were talking about from the beginning, which is thinking. <laughs> like that the core like the core skill here can like, you know, is ultimately about that, like being able to be fluid and fluid in mindset and then and then using that fluidity to be able to assess and adapt with the changing conditions based on what the actual need is. And I can see then also how that like heuristic trap of like, well, I've already picked this path or I already, or, you know, my training says I'm supposed to do this, you know, that like, I I could see a heuristic trap, right. Of like, um, my training says I need to go with the like fastest possible way to get there. But actually the conditions have changed and the conditions have changed in a way that means that like I need to be stealthy and evade, which means that I actually need to be taking perhaps a slower route that's a different route. Um, But I'm not willing to do that because I believe that I have to get there as quickly as possible. Yeah, totally. And I mean, that that's one reason too, that you want to always plan in like little mini breaks and like naps and you know, along your route, basically, because like, one thing that Pinar and I were talking about before um, we we started this conversation today is we were talking about how like, often in survival situations, you don't need to like actively flee, like really fast away from something unless it's like lava or like someone who's <laughs> literally like yeah. 10 feet behind you, like trying to hurt you. Um, mm-hmm. And like, so one thing to think about is no matter what happens, you're going to want to plan like pretty regular rest stops where you're like taking little mini naps um in a safe area and you're like drinking water and you're just kind of like zoning not zoning out per se but you know like yeah maybe like daydreaming a little bit or like going into kind of your peripheral vision a little bit and scanning and kind of you want to sort of build these brain breaks into what you're doing um because it's it's very rare that you're actually going to need to like move very quickly for a very long period of time without stopping unless unless like some of the things I mentioned before like you know you're running away from like a tornado um and so if you think about like what deer do like even when deer are super spooked by like someone walking with their like barky dog that like seems really ferocious like they're gonna go after the deer a deer will just like bound you know away maybe like 50 meters, maybe like one terrain feature away. So across the stream on the other side of the hill. And then right. they turn back and look. They turn back and, and look. That's right. And so like, you know, or think about what cats do. Cats, it's in a little bit of a different example, but <clears throat> cats are always when they're out in like hunting mode, especially they're stopping like every 10 paces. Um, and they're doing what's called a, a sills, which is a stop, look, listen, and smell. Um, and that's one thing we teach people to do a lot is like, always do these regular sills, like practices, like stop, look, listen, and smell, engage all your senses, you know? Um, and this is a good like way to build in, um, awareness just in a changing, um, complex, you know, changing environment. I don't know if you Yeah, I feel like with sills, one thing I love about sills is it's also to me, at least for my for myself and from what I've heard with others is it's 
also like naturally like um regulating to my nervous system to yeah. just, like, like stop and then look um listen and smell like those things are just it's just really helpful for my orientation um yeah and I feel like that that is really important with this you know going back to nervous system regulation is like you are we able, you know, going back to like the window of tolerance in where are we able to like think clearly and make decisions clearly? And, um, you know, to me doing like, um, a group sills, um, if, you know, if you're in a group of people or just like knowing like, okay, I'm activated right now, what can I do right now to just like take in information and kind of like, um, uh, yeah, just like come to a baseline as much as I'm able to in my nervous system. Um, I think that that can go such a long way as well. So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, that's great. And I have like, just, just like the OODA loop, it's so cool and helpful to have these like acronyms that are little tools that like we can just start using anywhere at any time. Um, I'm wondering too, if there's anything that y'all would add in terms of this question of like, taking mini breaks for people to rest and orient. Um, mm -hmm. If there's anything that you would add on this question about like how, how do people assess when it is safe to stop or when it is necessary to stop? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah. I mean, knowing when to stop, that's just a, great question. I think it like, it gets to the core of so much of what we're discussing. Um, mm. I mean, yeah, I think, I think that like, in it, in addition to building in those breaks, um, I think that one, um, factor that can really reduce situational awareness, and we might've included this in the document, um, that goes with the show notes, but I'm not sure, but it, um, is like just the philosophy that we must press on regardless of anything. Um, mm. And that is definitely, that's definitely a big factor that, you know, has been documented to lead to, to accidents, you know, and especially in this realm of sort of like mountaineering accidents, which get studied a lot by adventure bros, because I guess they like to do that. And so that's, that's where a lot of this heuristic um, and um, disaster psychology sort of science comes from is that that's, apparently something that people like to invest in studying but um but yeah that's been that's definitely a big factor is you don't want to get trapped into the mindset where you're kind of like oh we we must go on no matter what i guess to just questioning like why are we asking that and um what do we really need right now are, are we getting stuck in like a group mindset or like a group think um are we you know are we like overloaded or underloaded task wise? Cause both of those things can reduce your situational awareness and just your capacity to make decisions. Um, mm. So, so yeah. And then. And that, was, and that, and that I was, I was curious about that. I, I guess this is sort of getting into my next question a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I apologize for jumping ahead, but I remember when I saw that in the document, um, that piece about being underloaded with tasks, I was really curious about that and about like, um, so for context for the listeners who haven't seen the document, you know, one of the things that you're talking about, uh, in terms of like, um, that like in any group that's on the move surviving together, it's important to have like a division of roles where people have clear roles inside the group. Um, and that one of the reasons why is so that everyone has something to do because 
some of this research has shown that if people don't have something to do, then their ability to maintain awareness of the of the changing conditions around them um, goes down. Um, and that was really, really interesting to me, right? Because I feel like, um, I feel like one, maybe because it's like, I'm a bit of a type A person, um, but I, I have a hard time imagining like not, not automatically wanting to have something to do in a situation like this. But then on the other hand, I can imagine getting really overwhelmed by mm-hmm. the situation. And for that reason, maybe wanting other people to sort of figure it out for me. Yeah. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, like about that problem of people being um, underloaded with tasks mm-hmm. and then how the role division and role clarity in a situation can help with that. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think that, and I think to maybe answer this question, we could go in a little bit to just talking about like teamwork in on like a little bit more detailed, like kind of, because that was a big piece too that we were thinking of for today is just really like talking about strategizing as a squad and like bringing in the squad life like element. That'd be great. I think that will probably answer the question about underload, about task underload. And, you know, um, and we can sort of get into that. But I don't know if, Panar, if you wanted to get into teamwork in any way or if you wanted to start. So, um, yeah, one thing that's really helpful um, that to us is like having like a group size of around three to five people max. Um, And then you can also have like, two groups, you know, um, if you're like a bigger group and want to split into smaller groups of a squad. Um, And some of the roles that can be really helpful while moving on a landscape, um, especially if you're like in an an evasion situation as well, is um, having, so there's four four roles and you can also share roles, um, but I'll just name these four roles. So there is um, the person who's the lead, who's like looking ahead to where it's the, um, the next safest location to move, which is actually not super, it's, it's not like um, super far away. It's actually like, you know, within 50 feet or so, sometimes even like less than that. Um, and the next person is like the navig, the next role is like the navigator. So someone with like a map um, and a compass, potentially someone who's like orienting um, the group in that way and making these like micro um, terrain decisions of like, oh, we should go over towards this direction, but then the lead will um, help support, you know, where, where's the safest place to go. The, the navigator is kind of more macro and the lead, the leader point person is more micro just to like add that. Great. Um, and then the third role um, is the medic. Um so the person in the group who's like tracking the physical, emotional, spiritual well-being of the group, um, you know, the, a person with like the first aid kit, like um, whether it's like, you know, a, preferably a combination of like, you know, um, like so-called Western medicine and um, also um, like herbal, like herbal medic kind of kit too. Um, mm-hmm. And and then the last um the last role is like the rear guard, which is the person, it's actually my favorite role, actually. Um, but it's, um, to, at least for myself, that's kind of where one of my gifts is. But the, so the rear guard is the person 
who's like the overwatch, the person who's looking back to make sure no one is behind, um, like pursuing them essentially. And also the person who's like counter tracking. So making sure like, you know, um, to the best of their ability, like um, doing their best to like counter track the space of like making sure there's not that many tracks or like disturbances on the landscape. Like litter. It could just be picking up litter that other people, that your other group leaves behind. Yeah. And so with these four roles, um, it's also really important to like agree um, that they can, I would advise most of them to be static roles um, other than the like point person. Um, I think that that person, it it could be helpful for them to like rotate and have like some rotation because it can be like, um, it can be taxing, you know, and like to take care of the community, it's important to like do some rotations as well um yeah do you want anything yeah and I mean one of the reasons that we jumped into roles too is like roles just they help with this whole like game of like of like balancing awareness with like the danger of falling into kind of like heuristic traps and so to speak um and you know ideally you might plan roles in advance like if you're home with your family or your housemates are one of you more interested in like first aid you know, um, who might end up falling into that role in, a, in an emergency. Um, you know, is someone really interested in learning how to read a map? You know, I feel like we need more of those because, I mean, that's it's always like no one wants to do that. Um, no one wants to be the map reader. Right. I mean, I love maps, but it's also like one of those things where you have to practice it so much that it can just be, you know, hard to do. But yeah, if, if someone's excited about that, then those are those totally fall into kind of two somewhat distinct roles that Pinar mentioned. Um, so like, yeah, it's it's kind of like going into that um, mindset of kind of planning things in advance and thinking about like what role you might like to do. Um, and one reason we mentioned that the group size is small, like between three to five people, is that you want to balance like safety and numbers um, and you want to also balance like the benefit you get from having more eyes and ears and capacity with a larger group and being able to multiply your awareness in that way. And you want to um, balance that with nimbleness and also with um, just efficiency. And so, you know, and this gets into our wider discussion about just team teamwork and just um, squad life is that, um, you know, without good communication and task distribution, the advantages that I mentioned, um, like more ideas, more capacity, more eyes and ears on the environment, safety and numbers, those can all get lost pretty quickly um, if if you don't have good communication and task distribution. And so task distribution goes to the roles aspect. And then communication protocols are also really effective. And they're, in fact... that's probably what you should plan even before you get into the roles or alongside with it is like communication protocols um, and strategies, you know, for your team, your family. So these could be like hand hand signals, you know, Um, they could, you could make up your own hand signal system or you could access some of the hand signal systems that already exist that have been developed by certain institutions and groups. Um, You could make coded language like, and I don't just mean a code as in like a cipher, although that's that's kind of next level. That that could be fun too to actually create, that's you like, know, a, a cipher. Like, or, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> that could be a fun thing for kids too. Oh my gosh. 
but like yeah. you know if you don't want to go that far and create an actual cipher you can just create sort of coded ways of communicating like um certain sounds like panar and i often use like sounds that sound kind of like bird like calls um that we'll do to each other and then you also are, are going to want to have safe words um mm. or sounds or like kind of emergency sounds and that can come back into like some of these discussions and problems that can arise around um, team dynamics and team communication, especially when folks are needing to follow a certain plan because like that's because that's like the only thing that's going to keep them safe. Um, mm. And having safe words can be good because it's like a way for you to be like, okay, guys, like seriously, I need to like I need to like say something right now, and it's and it's not just because like you know, I disagree with you. It's because I also am feeling like I'm in danger right now. Um, mm. Stuff like that. And then also think about like, what would you do? How would you communicate in the dark? Like, you know, what if you make your hand signals, but then it's dark and no one has a flashlight? Like, right. you know, how are you going to communicate? Are you going to, you know, are, are you going to be able to squeeze each other's arm? Or what if you're separated and you can't touch each other? Um, mm. And so just thinking about that and layering that and weaving it in with the roles um, is really great. And and the role with the roles, it's good to not get stuck in a role because that can become a heuristic trap. But then it's also good to delegate the many tasks involved in survival, like especially if you have to move because it can get overwhelming, you know? And so to be able to like trust each other um, is so important. And And, you know, I think building trust is, it's kind of like a, esoteric thing to talk about sometimes in survival, you know, because we're talking about these quick situations that are happening urgently and, you know, building trust is, again, it's like, the, it's a spiritual practice and it's probably the hardest one that there is with your family, with your team. And if you have trust, you're going to be able to, um, to really rely on each other and believe in each other and see each other's gifts. And, I mean, this kind of ties into to like leadership because really a good leader, like in a lot of survival situations, it doesn't always work to have complete consensus on every decision all the time. But right. what is what you can do is you can have a level of consent in who is going to be the leader right now for this period of time, who is going to make the critical decisions and that can rotate. But as long as you agree and you have that kind of fundamental consent, then you can definitely like be in a place where you can where having a leader can work um and it yeah. and you know it comes back to trust and it comes back to like reframing leadership as actually good leadership is when a person um sees the gifts of everyone in the group and they track the gifts of and they listen to everyone in the group and they try to steward a common vision um while yeah. also keeping safety in mind which is really hard <laughs> like, yes. really hard. hard and so i think that like yeah just um being able to have these roles and also like being able to you know trust leadership when it does need to arise um which is again well, so much easier said than done so well yeah and it's interesting too to like think about how that trust building happens in a if you're in a situation where you're thrown into a survival scenario with people that you don't know, you know, like, um, I think often about like 
um, in Octavia Butler's work, for instance, that so often the protagonists of her stories are having to kind of like create a survival team out of a group of strangers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that, that in her writing that she's really uplifting is exactly that leadership skill you're talking about, which is the ability to like see other people's gifts and then delegate the fuck out of it. And yeah. like, you know, um, but I think about that, I think about that as a challenge. And then I also think about the challenge of like, as being a parent and about like, what would it look like to delegate responsibility if I was in a scenario where I'm, where I, there is maybe some level of responsibilities that I can delegate, but actually, ultimately, I am at the end of the day, the one who's going to be responsible for keeping my children safe. And so there's like an overriding there's like, there's the developmental reality of like what my children can and can't be responsible for just based on wherever they are in their developmental process. Yeah. But then there's that overriding mm -hmm. responsibility that I have to them that like, I can't hand off. I don't think, you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and I yeah, think like with just, when I think about kids, it makes me think about like, finding ways to engage their imagination, which I know that we touched upon last time a little bit. And I, um, you know, I feel like the sky's the limit with that. But like, if you can find those moments where there's some sort of directive or task that, like, one of your children or someone who's just y younger could could meet, like, just finding ways to engage their imagination in that, like, like oh, you know kids often are really good at building like a cozy, you know, bed or like fort area. And so like, you know, like, I feel like kids get super excited about shelter, like anything shelter related, um, you know, and totally. so, so like, that's something that I would, I would definitely think about. But yeah, it's such a good um, point what you're bringing up. Mm. I want to stay with this, um, this like, piece around roles, teamwork, leadership for a moment um, and, um, and talk about decision-making because, mm -hmm. you know, in our last conversation, we talked about the problem of the hero narrative, right? And the, um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> particularly how for like those of us from oppressed or marginalized groups or who are navigating these spaces with like, various kinds of like trauma or other kinds of vulnerabilities, you know, we know that our survival is going to be contingent on our ability to think and act collectively. And, um, and there's a piece of that that's about role. And then there's a piece of that in my mind, that's also about will. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk about like, um, in your experience in, especially you were talking earlier about how like you, you see um, where, where you see some of those like heuristic traps show up in the trainings that you lead. And I'm wondering if you could talk about like in your work, in your experience, what have you noticed about like how collectives decision-making or even just having an orientation of care for the collective how that actually impacts people's chances for survival when that when the collective decision making comes online. Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, 
one thing that comes up for me um, when with that question is, so I think this was about three years ago. I can't remember the exact year it was, but we were in this training, um, like a stealth um, or like a scout training. And um, I have some chronic pain and also, um, yeah, just chronic illness and um, Emma Spoonie, which is referring to spoon theory. I don't know what that is. So, uh, yeah, totally. Um, so I love that word Spoonie because I think it brings up so much. Um, it's just a, it, it's a great image and a curiosity uh, initiator. So um, essentially a Spoonie is someone, um, it, it, it's reflective of the spoon theory, which is a disability um, metaphor used for um, people who have disabilities who have like a certain amount of resources or capacity throughout a day that they have to s- strategize about um, very deliberately. Um, uh. Yeah, and it's um, it was created by someone who's disabled, and it's used for um, used by disabled folks too. So the word spoony means someone who um, who like has to be very aware of their spoons every day, um, and Got it's it. a person who's disabled, whether it's like. Um, you know, an invisible disability, like a chronic illness or chronic pain, or like, um, also like, um, a physical disability as well. Um, mm-hmm. or a combination. Yeah. So as a spoonie, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, it's, yeah, I feel like, um, so when I was doing this training, um, I, my chronic pain, like flared up like it was just like off the charts and it's um it can be really unpredictable uh, um, at times and so it unfortunately started like the first or second day of this training which was supposed to be like uh, like really intense like stress inoculation training um where you know we were supposed to we were like involved with like a scenario that was running all the time essentially Mm-hmm. And, um, I had, um, I was set, it was a class where I didn't know anyone. So I had, um, um, like a, like a group of people, like, a like where we were doing the team of four, um, the rear guard, um, navigator, medic and lead. And, um, I had a really amazing group of people that were in my, that were in my squad. And I was just really struggling with like my pain um and it was just like I just felt you know we weren't in a place that was like centering disability justice or anything (laughs) and like um and essentially I just shared with my group who were just like such compassionate people um probably one of the most compassionate peoples uh, or people of the the group at the time um you know what was going on with me and and I was just like you know I could like just step out like you know I just feel so embarrassed about my chronic pain like Cause, uh, yeah, it, it was just like coming up for me, like kind of my internalized ableism and, um, like shame around that and, um, like not wanting to slow down the group. <clears throat> and then the, my team was just like, no, like if you want, you know, you're welcome to join the group, take care of yourself as you need. And like, um, you know, we need to move like, you know, according to like how, how fast you can move or like your ability level um at the time and and I was just like really inspired and I was like wow like usually with my chronic pain I'll just like opt out of things and I'll be like wow I'm just gonna like you know slow down the group and whatever and 
um that was actually the time where I like realized that I'm like a really good rear guard (laughs) in the back but like the the and um the lead knew that I was moving slow so they weren't going like super far fast and we had a communication going on about like you know we were just being like communicative about my needs and um but I was really good at counter tracking because I was taking care of I was like looking at the like that level of detail and it just, it was just like, we were just like in a dynamic where I kind of found my little niche and we found our niche. Wow. And, um, and I had a makeshift cane <laughs> and it was just like, really, it, it really inspired me. Cause I was like, um, it, it just made me really be like, wow, we need to move. Uh, like we can't just be like, okay, the people who are able to be in these like group scenarios have to be like very, you know, I don't know, muscular buff, whatever, very like uh, mobile or whatever, ambulatory. Um, And it just made me realize like that it it was just so important to just move with the needs of the group. And it actually made us way stronger as a team. And we got a lot of like missions like done that were, just like a lot of folks were like, whoa, like y'all like did some amazing stuff. And of I course think- did. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, but yeah, I, well, they were really that Pinar's group. I was here for this training um, and Pinar's group was extremely stealthy, like because they moved so slowly, which in evasion is actually one of the, it's like a good thing because you, because movement and motion is what causes detection a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And so um thinking about really slowing down, which is something we teach in, in like, you know, basic kind of nature connection stuff is like um, slowing down and, and moving like the deer do, or, you know, like crawling if you have to, like really slowly and and kind of moving in those ways um, can be, you know, can definitely be like less energy intensive. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so, but yeah, their group was like super, super stealthy. And then another thing that, we've done like in some of the stealth craft classes that we've taught we'll often have like one scenario where like we put a lot of the skills we've been practicing like our awareness skills our movement skills our communication skills we'll kind of test them out and by playing a game um and it's super fun it's kind of basically like the the people the participants in our class have to like solve a problem and it involves sneaking up on us the instructors and trying to like get information from um, us and kind of spy on us basically consensually and, um, and, and, and it's all done under the cover of darkness and there's one there's usually a fire going so there's some light but basically in the dark and without being detected they have to sort of sneak up on us get a bunch of information and figure out a puzzle that kind of exists out in the woods that we've set up for them and um uh, several times that this has happened in, in fact i think every time we've run the class there's usually like some folks in the class who are like, I don't necessarily want to like sneak around in the darkness. And, you know, that's not necessarily like, you know, not necessarily something that my body can do right now, or just, I just don't feel like it emotionally or mentally. And Mm -hmm. um, everything is of course opt in and we frame it like that. So often what we'll suggest is we'll suggest like that there, there will be folks who, you know, don't actually have to move at all. And, and they can be sort of, points of information collection, you know, they can be um, information collectors, basically, or they can exist at certain rendezvous points or meeting points. Um, mm. and those are the people who actually 
without them, no one could solve the puzzle. Because one of the biggest things, uh, the first things to break down in team situations where you have to solve a problem as a team, whether you're a medical team responding to a, like a mass casualty incident in the woods at night, or whether you're like a scout team trying to evade detection um, together, like the the first thing to break down is communication. And then that means that like nothing can really get done in a coordinated way. And so if you think about like folks like really can have an opportunity to reframe like the gifts and abilities that they have, or they could have in these situations, because I mean, without those folks who stayed in one place and like, you know, gathered information and like connected people, nothing would have gotten done. So it's kind of like, that's just an example. You know, you could, I'm sure people could think of more roles like that. Totally. It's like having a switchboard operator. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then the one other thing that we wanted to mention too, was just thinking about group dynamics and just like how to make decisions is often like, it's really good to have, especially if you're a leader and you're like the person tasked with delegating at that time, it's really good to think about giving people directives that are kind of like bottom line, like fundamental, what needs to get done in an ultimate sense, um, tasks rather than trying to micromanage and telling them exactly how they're going to do that task. And there's been lots of research to show that giving giving people sort of like your ultimate goal and engaging and inviting them to help you meet that with their gifts is going to, that's going to engage their creativity and give them the most space. And they're just going to be more engaged as opposed to if you try to like micromanage it and you're like, well, you know, I want you to make a fire, but I really want you to like do it like this and then do it like that. It's like, just be like, hey, you're really good at making a fire. Like, could you just be in charge of like, be on point for that and make sure that gets done today you know Mm -hmm. or like you know could you like you're really great at like organizing and thinking in a logistical way do you want to like inventory our gear you know and then having and then just stopping there like don't don't micromanage because that reduces people's creativity Thanks for tuning in to the Apocalypse Survival mini-series of How to Survive the End of the World. We're a little over halfway through this series and have been so delighted by the way these episodes have been received. Our upcoming episodes will look at digital security and the future of the internet. And we'll also feature an episode reimagining healthcare access as our current economy of disaster capitalism continues to decay and collapse. How to Survive the End of the World is on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. We're so grateful to all of you who have continued donating during this incredibly tight economic moment. And special thanks to our new patrons. Y'all are amazing. We see you. We love you. Another thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are an iPhone person. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. And big, big thanks to Zach, who is producing weekly episodes while caring for a toddler. It's no small feat. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. <laughs>